Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to that passage, to Isaiah 54. Uh, as I said, we focused on verses 1 through 10 last week. Now, there are both present and future implications to God's promises about His church becoming fruitful and His relationship with His bride being perfectly reconciled. But last week, we were primarily focused on how those promises meet us today in the present. We're supposed to sing today because Jesus is the servant who has already brought us into this massive tent called the church. Today, he takes away our fear and our shame because today he names himself as our husband, who isn't angry but rather full of compassion and steadfast love. Today, God does not ask you to pay for the wrongs that you have done. Because he himself has already paid the price for our forgiveness. We call these things the already, the already of what Jesus has done. We, ex we already experience them today as we receive and rest in Jesus. But as I was telling the kids, if there is an already to these things, there is also a not yet. And in verse 11, we see... We see God's awareness of the ways that His people do not yet experience everything that He has promised. Uh, after all, this is a word that was given to people in exile, far from home. It was written to people anticipating the exile and then actually experiencing that exile. And how does God describe them in their present experience? He calls them afflicted. Storm-tossed, not comforted. That is an honest description of what the Israelites felt after Jerusalem, the city of peace, was destroyed by Babylon. She was the city where God dwelt with His people. She was the city where it was supposed to be the place where atonement for sin was made. The city where the wrongs of the world were being undone. Where God and His people lived together in peace. And where His people lived in peace with each other. But, but she had become a city where unrighteousness was the norm. Her people had persistently turned away from the Lord and turned on each other too. And that's why, at this time, Jerusalem was going to become a smoldering ruin laid waste by the king of Babylon. That's why God's people were going to sit and weep by the rivers of Babylon, afflicted by the consequences of their own sin. Yahweh's people were going to feel the deep discomfort of life under Babylon's harsh rule. Instead of enjoying the stability of life in the promised land, they were tossed on the waves of uncertainty. When? When will our exile end? When will we go home? When will the not yet of God's promises be now? For them and for us, any honest description of our today has to include the pain that we experience here. Everyone knows, even if we pretend otherwise, that there is something false about effortless, Instagram-worthy depictions of life. 
But if we are acknowledging the reality that, like these Israelites, we feel afflicted and storm-tossed today, then we have to talk about the source of that pain. Now, it's easy to locate the sources of pain that are outside of us. Some of Israel's pain came from the harshness of life in Babylon. They were not kind hosts to God's people in exile. And like them, we know that sometimes our pain comes at us from the outside. The sin of others against us hurts us deeply. But if we are sinned against, we are also sinners ourselves. And while it's hard to discern what part of our pain is caused by others and what is a part of my own disordered loves, honesty has to include a confession that I myself am my greatest threat to my own peace. And so maybe today you are feeling the deep discomfort of an unreasonable, unreasonable boss or a spouse who is less than as loving as they should be. Maybe today you are painfully aware that some of your affliction is a consequence of your own selfishness. But whenever our sin intersects with others, suffering is the natural result. And that means for us that all of us here today are in the same storm-tossed boat. All of us might be asking the same question that the disciples once asked Jesus when they were scared in a storm-tossed boat. Don't you care that we're perishing? Now, I'll be honest with you. I cannot answer all of your questions about why God does not end pain today. But the one thing that we can't say is that God does not care about our pain because he entered into it in the person of Jesus and he suffered under it himself. Your God knows what the misery of being sinned against feels like. And though he had no sin of his own, he felt the weight of all of our sin when he paid the price himself on the cross. He felt it so that he could rescue you from it. There is no other God who does that for his people. And so this acknowledgement of our experience today in verse 11, it's actually meant to be a profound encouragement to us because it assures you that God sees you today. He's aware of what you're experiencing, but here he also promises that it will not always be so. Here, God presents to his people a sure, certain hope that he himself is going to achieve. Did you catch the two I wills in verses 11 and 12? If you add to those the nine shalls in verses 13 to 17, then these future tense verbs build together a vision of the future that promises relief from what you experience today. More than that, though, it even affects how we walk today, walk through the present. And all of it, verse 17 says, look at this, verse 17 says all of it, and this includes the promises of verses 1 through 10, all of it represents the heritage of the servants of the Lord. 
Now, a heritage is one's portion, one's assigned share of an inheritance. And here, God says that these things belong to his servants. And so who are these servants? We have to ask that. For whom are the promises of chapter 54 their inheritance? Well, in the context uh, of what immediately precedes this, the answer is clear. The servants of the Lord are those who have embraced the servant of the Lord, who we know to be Jesus of Nazareth. For all you who cling to him, all of these promises are yours because he himself was afflicted and storm-tossed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and he was slaughtered like a lamb. And in Jesus, the true servant, you yourselves are restored to be servants of the Lord. And that also means that you have a share in what the Lord is giving to him. Now, it, this is what God promised about the servant just in the preceding chapter in 53.12. The Lord said that because his servant poured out his soul to death, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What, what is his portion? What does he get for his faithfulness to the point of death? That's what chapter 54 is beginning to describe. Although, of course, it's not a comprehensive list because Christ gets everything. But that's part of the beauty here is you get everything with him. What he has is also yours. And so I want you to look at this passage and I want you to ask the question, what is ours in Christ? What is this inheritance the Lord promises to us? Well, we see four things, uh, which we're going to have to consider all too briefly. The Lord promises us a city of permanent beauty. A city of permanent beauty. He promises a city of peace and righteousness. Peace and righteousness. A city secure. And it's a city of disciples. A city full of disciples. First, I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. Here he promises a city of permanent beauty. Now, to those who saw Jerusalem thrown down and ransacked and burned, this vision of a lovely, lasting city would have pulled at their hearts and met them in their grief. And listen to the way this master architect describes his rebuilding plans. I will set your stones in antimony. Now, antimony is a semi-metallic substance that when it is ground up, it can produce a blackened cement. And actually, it was even used as eyeshadow in the ancient world. And so what we have here is a combination of strength and beauty, of of permanence and elegance. The white stone walls outlined by this black mortar would be striking like a woman's eyes flashing through dark settings. And as this list of building material goes on to include precious stones, I want you just to imagine a city like this. Uh, another said, do you realize a city that would have been made out of diamonds, sapphires, and rubies would have been, first of all, absolutely militarily and politically secure because nobody would have been able to break down walls made of that. 
But secondly, it would have been incredibly economically prosperous because it would have been the most valuable and wealthy city in the world. But it would have also been a place of aesthetic beauty. Now, we know that Jerusalem was rebuilt after the exile, but it wasn't built like that. Uh, Although the young men shouted for joy when the foundation of the new temple was laid, the old men wept aloud. And you couldn't tell the difference between the shouts of joy and the weeping because the old men knew that the glory of that one was less than the first. And so what is Isaiah pointing us toward? What becomes clear is that Isaiah is getting a glimpse of the same city that God gave to John in his revelation on the, while he was in exile on Patmos. It's the very same city that Abraham was looking forward to when he left Ur of the Chaldees. The same city Moses and David and all the prophets longed to see. This is the city with solid foundations whose designer and builder is God. But what is the meaning behind the permanent beauty of this city? What, what Isaiah and John both reveal in this picture it is the end of time when the Lord will deliver to you the inheritance that was secured for you through Jesus' death on the cross. God's intention, you have to understand, God's intention for this world, for you, never included disease or suffering or death, or poverty, or racism, or injustice of any kind. And there is coming a day when those things will all be described. Revelation 21 tells us those things will all be described as former things because they will have passed away. Because in the end, Christ will finish destroying the works of the devil and make everything new. And God's people will be gathered into this permanent and beautiful city. How how can you be among them? How can you have a place in the city that is prosperous and stunningly attractive? The answer is simple. It's through the gospel. By receiving and resting in Christ who has qualified sinners like us for a share in this. The beauty and permanence of the city, however, as as one commentator puts it, it's only the manifestation that strikes the senses of the spiritual glory of the church that's dwelling within it. In other words, the beauty of the outside of the city is matched or maybe even surpassed by the beauty of the inside of the city because this city is also a city of peace and righteousness. We're going to come back to the first part of verse 13, but listen to the second part. Great shall be the peace of your children. You you know that when the Lord speaks of peace, He's talking about far more than, than the absence of conflict. He is talking about a set of conditions in which human beings flourish. And so here, the promise to these exiles is that their children, those who come after them, will experience the kind of fullness 
that mankind has always desired but has failed to achieve. But if peace, if peace is part of the promised inheritance, then we shouldn't be surprised when the New Testament speaks so much of the peace that Christ has secured for his people. It's something that you already enjoy. As Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we already have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. But you understand the promise here is actually bigger. This promise includes the not yet of peace that we don't currently enjoy because not only will God's people enjoy relational peace with him as we do now in Christ, that peace will grow deeper and wider as we live out his fuller intentions for us as human beings. We, We see some of that in the next lines in verse 14, as the Lord promises his people will be established in Righteousness. To say it another way, he is promising that we'll live out life as it's supposed to be. The way that he intended it to be in the beginning, when he looked at everything that he made, including human beings, and said, it's very good. We're, and we're only given hints here of what that will look like. It, here it's described mainly in the negative. That is, it's described by what you won't experience Because we have such a hard time imagining what life will look like when all sin is removed from the picture. We we can't imagine what it means to no longer be a sinner or for people to no longer sin against us. And so he simply says, you'll be far from oppression. You shall not fear. You'll be far from terror. But the New Testament tells us that you... That that in Christ you are taught what makes for human flourishing. In Him you are taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And you're taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you catch the already of this? You are already created in the image of God, recreated in the image of God because you have been united with Christ, who is both God and the only human being not marred by sin. Already you are being renewed to look like Him. And God's promise is that He will conform you more and more to His image until it is completed in the age to come. But until then, in the meantime, it is vital for us as Christians to pursue Christ's likeness today, even as we await the not yet of this promise. Today, we must be about the business of putting off the old, deeply wrong ways of living and learn from Christ an entirely new way of being human. Another said, racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all these things are marks of living in the world and are the opposite of the mindset of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. 
As Christians, God is calling us to live out the character and values of His King and His kingdom today. And to the extent that we do this, it will be both confusing and attractive to others. Rather than being able to easily label us, we can explode some of their assumptions about Christ and Christianity. As another pastor hoped for his church, we want people to look at us and say, that's a conservative church because of all that talk about substitutionary atonement and all that doctrinal stuff. But others would say, no, 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 it's a liberal church. Look at all that talk about justice in the world and concern for the poor. Other people would say, that must be a charismatic church because of all that love and all that singing. We want to be all of those things. We'd be conservative. We'd be charismatic. We'd be liberal. It just means generous. We'd be all of those things and more because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that salvation includes a life of peace and righteousness within the city of God, of which you are citizens already through Christ Jesus, your Lord. Now, time is hastening on, and I want to talk about the promise of a city of disciples. So let me just comment briefly on the security of this city. In verses 15 through 17, it speaks about those who stir up strife or wield weapons against God's people. The promise here is really pretty simple. The city of God is secure because... First, all the powers of evil are under God's control. And second, He will defend His people. Uh, Again, there's so much that we could say here, but I feel the need to say something because I see two very different yet identical fears at work in so many people, including many Christians today. In short, You understand in the present context, there are those who are fearful of disease and death. And their fearfulness is only matched by those who are afraid of the agendas, known or unknown, of certain people or groups. About this spirit of fearfulness... I appreciate the words of Marilyn Robinson. She's a a, a Christian, a Pulitzer Prize winner whose book Gilead is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. She She writes of our present day, there are always real dangers in the world sufficient to their day. Yet fearfulness obscures the distinction between real threat on one hand and on the other, the terrors that beset those who see threat everywhere. She says, my my thesis is always the same, and it's very simply stated, though it has two parts. First, contemporary America is full of fear. And second, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Precisely because we believe that all the powers of evil are under God's control and He will defend His people. 
No, no, God is not promising his people immunity from evil in this age. We're still waiting for the day when oppression is far from us. And it is true that uh, until then, our faith in God's sovereign reign over all things does not negate faith-filled action on our part. We have truth to speak, and we have things to do. But what this passage relieves us from in the meantime is the spirit of fearfulness. Christ has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That nearness of the Lord to his people is highlighted in the last promise that I want us to see in the first part of verse 13. When the Lord says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. What is he promising there? He is promising a city full of disciples. You know that Israel's history is a tragic failure of discipleship. But in his unbreakable, unremovable covenant of peace, God promises this to his people in exile through Jeremiah. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We need to see that this common, uh, that is communal, personal discipleship is what is beneath the strength of God's city as well as its righteousness. When God's people are trained by his grace and by his word, then righteousness, rightness, becomes the constant habit. When God's people are trained by his grace and his word, then our peace is unassailable, even by the very real threats that exist today. And we have to acknowledge that we are not yet fully trained by his grace. We are not yet as mature as Christ intends us to be. One writer looking at the wider church says, Non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. He goes on to say the elephant is not, not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live in the kingdom already among us. And it is an accepted reality. The, the division of professing Christians into those for whom discipleship is a matter of whole life devotion and those who maintain a consumer or client relationship to the church has been an accepted reality for over 1,500 years. But Paul says that this whole life devotion, that's the very thing that's the mission of our church, this whole life devotion to God is the very thing that Jesus has won for us. He, he says the grace of God has appeared training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so what we're saying is this life of listening to Jesus, being taught by Him, pursuing obedience to Him, repenting and believing the gospel again when we blow it, and then pursuing new obedience again. This is the good life to which Christ has saved you. This life of being taught how to really be human by the Lord Himself is part of Jesus' gift to you. It's part of your inheritance. This disciple's life is what we will enjoy in the city that is to come. So why wouldn't we want to enjoy it now? Even as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. After all, Paul says, Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so today, sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him what it means to belong to God, what it means to be human. As we're learning, going to learn in Sunday school, if we come to him, he will give us rest for our weariness. That storm-tossed feeling will diminish because he himself is gentle and lowly in heart. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. In Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, he tells the story of Christian making his way down the long road of discipleship. But along the way, all the way, there is a point of light in the distance that orients him It encourages him along the journey. That point of light, far on the horizon, it was the first thing that he saw as his journey began. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, when he would lift up his eyes from his present pain and confusion, that light felt faint and far off, but he still saw it. It was still there. And it would grow brighter and brighter as he went. It's the light of the celestial city, the city of the king. And though he had never been there, he knew that it was his home. And his Lord's promise of reaching and being welcomed into that city is what sustained him and gave him hope as he walked through this present age. And here in this passage, God shows you the light of that same city because you... You are pilgrims too. You're on your way, but you aren't there yet. And so you need this glimpse to keep you going, even if it's just for today. But this city, this city is already yours in Christ. And so keep clinging to Him and keep walking. Soon and very soon, He says, He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And when that day comes, you'll see this city, this place that Jesus has been preparing, so that where He is, you may be also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for this word that does encourage us. Father, we know that 
the sun himself is the light of this city. And so would you help us to fix our eyes on him. Father, encourage our hearts with this word. Even as we walk into this week, Father, let us acknowledge the reality of the pain that we feel, but take heart, knowing that Christ has overcome the world and will soon bring us home. We pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.